Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry. We gather together every two weeks to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. There is a famous story in the Bible called The Parable of the Talents. However, today's episode is titled Talents of the Parable. said that there's a way that we read stories. We necessarily digest information through a particular hermeneutic lens, with a certain worldview. I alluded to the notion that we risk missing the deeper layers, or even the crux itself of a story, if we are not aware of our approach and its limitations. Today, I want to examine an instance of a common literary device, especially for the Bible. These are replete throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus. They are seeded with a certain amount of ambiguity, and these literary devices are designed and built to be inherently confusing. I am, of course, talking about parables. A parable is a story that illustrates a specific principle, usually by expressing one idea in terms of another. Making sense of something unknown in terms of something known. Understanding a principle for which we have little or no reference point by making a comparison to a principle that we know well. The word parable itself is a conflation of two Greek words, essentially bringing together the ideas of being placed beside and being thrown. So then, a parable is something thrown beside like two objects that are tossed together. If we can keep our eye on one of them, then we also know where the other one is and what it's doing, even if we can't actually see it. To give you another example, a parable is like a comet. The nucleus of a comet is unseen. It is relatively small, say, about a half mile in diameter, and rather obfuscated by the tail that it creates. That tail is on the order of a thousand miles long. When we look into the Welkin and see a comet there, what we really see is the enormous tail. However, even though it's too small to see, we also know exactly where the nucleus is, because the tail and the nucleus travel together. And if we know where one is, then we know where both are. Jesus oftentimes taught in parables, and these are brilliant devices that can provide clarity to a confusing idea. Paul used parables in this way. But I submit to you that, more often than not, Jesus used parables not to make everything as plain as day, but to befuddle his listeners. And I have evidence for this claim. In the Bible, there is a dialogue between Jesus and some of his disciples. They asked him, Master, why do you address the crowds in parables? So Jesus replied, To you the secrets of heaven are given, but to them they are not. The people will see but not perceive. They will hear and not understand. 
There are deep implications in those words. In fact, such is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah. But aside from these heavier assertions, I believe that there is also a very pragmatic reason for the parabolic teaching of Jesus. They force people to work for an answer. The casual listener walked away confused, probably thinking that Jesus was a little separated from his sanity. I asked him what God is like, and he started to tell me about a woman who lost a coin. The casual listener doesn't get it. The casual listener is ready to listen if Jesus is willing to spoon-feed, if it's easy, if it doesn't take too much effort, if it won't take too much time. But that's not really the way of God, is it? Jesus wants dedicated, all-in followers. So he says, I will indeed tell you what God is like, but I won't make it easy for you. You will have to work for it. You will have to dig in, think about it, dwell on it, ask me questions, talk it over with your friends. After you do that for a while, then you will understand it. And when you do, you'll own it. Today, let's think about the following parable that Jesus told to his followers. A master was going away on a journey. He called three of his servants and entrusted money to each of them according to their abilities. To the first he gave five talents, to the second he gave two, and to the third he gave one. After a while, the master returned. The first servant, to whom five talents had been entrusted, said to the master, While you were away, I doubled your money, and now you have ten talents. The master replied, Well done! You are a good and faithful servant. Come and share in my joy. Similarly, the second servant, to whom two talents had been entrusted, said to the master, While you were away, I doubled your money, and now you have four talents. The master replied, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. Come and share in my joy. The third servant, to whom one talent had been entrusted, said to the master, Sir, I know that you are a harsh master, and that you take what you yourself don't earn. So I was scared. I hid your one talent, and now here it is, returned to you. The master replied, You are a wicked servant. You know that I am a harsh master, and take that which I myself don't earn. See now, I am casting you out into the darkness where there is pain and agony. Attempting to understand this parable has forced me to dig in over the years, to really seek for its meaning. When I first heard the story, I was but a young lad, and it was explained to me something like this. Each of the servants was entrusted with varying amounts of talents. Now a talent is an amount of money, but isn't it a fantastic coincidence that talent is also our English word for God-given skills, abilities, proficiencies, etc. So, one way to think about the story is that it's about using your talents for God, making a concerted effort to locate your resources, your time, your money, your resources, what you have, and also your gifts, 
competencies, proclivities, pensions, you know, your talents, to the things of God. In this way, the story is about leading a saintly, not selfish, life. And those who do not waste their talents will be rewarded when they die, whereas those who do waste them will be punished. This is a story about mandates and judgments. I would say that this is a valid interpretation, albeit perhaps a bit far-fetched with the notion of talents, but the sentiment is the same, so I'm comfortable with the lesson. However, only a few years ago, I read the 1880 classic Ben-Hur by Lew Wallace, and in it, there was a passage in which Ilderim was wagering with some Roman patricians. Ilderim offered to bet multiple golden talents on Ben-Hur, and the Romans were astonished, absolutely baffled. They claimed that no one but the emperor himself could afford to match such a wager. Read the book to see how the passage ends, but it got me thinking. A talent must be a lot of money. So I did some research and reread the parable. As the context clues let on, a talent is indeed a lot of money. In fact, it was the largest monetary unit of the day, way more than just a few coins, because most readers of the Bible are understandably not first century scholars. Some translations might read, bag of gold, but even that is far undershooting it. A talent of gold is roughly 75 pounds worth. 15 years' wages for a workman. In the parable that Jesus told, each servant was entrusted with something like seven or eight figures. Yet, did you note how, in that story, no instructions were given to the servants? It happened that servants one and two were ambitious and grew the money. Good for them. But when it comes to servant three, did he really do anything wrong? To me, he seemed to do all right. Think about it. If you entrust a friend with your life savings, went away for a year, came back, and your friend returned the money, didn't your friend do a good job? Isn't that a fair and appropriate response from the servant? But even though the servant returned the same amount of money that was consigned to him, he was cast out. Apparently, then, that wasn't enough. Yet, no instructions were ever issued. This story, then, is about doing more than we think. We can't squeeze by flirting with the bare minimum. A little extra effort, some initiative, going the extra mile. This is what is expected of us. It shouldn't have to be explicitly stated. This, in a way, makes sense. After all, God has done so much for us, so it's not unreasonable for God to expect us to do a little in return, right? And isn't it true that God wants committed, all-in followers? In the context of the parable, committed, all-in servants would have taken the initiative and done whatever possible to advance the master's cause. And the kicker is, without needing to be told to do so. This is a story about committing and going all in for God. Some time later, though, I return again to the parable, 
and I'm perplexed. The interpretation just set forth seems to make good sense and align with all the details of the story. That is, except for one non-sequitur. I cannot seem to resolve the incongruous, harsh master, take-what-I-don't-earn dialogue. It seems very out of place. This is the ESV translation. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. This dialogue seems inappropriate. It just doesn't make sense. Servant 3 had just witnessed his two counterparts completely outdo him. He had to give some kind of reckoning to his master. But instead of apologize, offer an explanation, or even an excuse, the servant basically insulted his master. Servant 3 called him a cruel, hard thief. That is not the way that one should propitiate or attempt to escape punishment. Yet amazingly, the master, instead of denying the accusation and correcting the servant, agreed. The master, who undoubtedly is the God character in this parable, admitted to, quote, reaping where he has not sown. To put it plainly, this exchange doesn't make much sense to me. It just doesn't seem right. So I give it time and return to it later. And what I realized is that if you look closely, the servant is talking to the master like he's a Bedouin raider. In that culture of desert nomads, harshness and cruelty, reaping where one has not sown, are respected traits. Think House Greyjoy. To them, being called a harsh thief is complimentary, not condemnatory. Therefore, Servant 3 was not being disrespectful. He was sucking up. He was trying to compliment the master and curry favor. Perhaps his tactic would have worked, except for the oversight that the master is not Bedouin. The servant had prepared materials for the wrong audience. Why? Because the servant did not know the character of the master, but the master's reply was great. He neither confirmed nor denied what the servant said, simply offered a rhetorical question. You know these things about me? As if to say, is this who you think I am? There is clearly a disconnect between the master and the servant. When we consider the invitation to share in the master's joy, perhaps it is less about they did good, they get in, you did bad, get out. It's more the master is back, and that's great, and the money is doubled. Wow, fantastic! Let's celebrate! For the third servant, though, that's probably not an appealing invitation. There is clearly a gap of understanding between master and servant. So the casting out is not a punishment, but giving that servant what he probably wants, release from the master. 
This is a story about relationship and knowing the character of God. But it is also a story about how, if you don't want that relationship, God's not going to force it on you. We've touched on three possible interpretations of this parable. The first was about using your talents for God. The second was about making a concerted effort to go above and beyond. The third was about understanding the character of God. Which interpretation is correct, if any? There's a good chance that all of them are, to a certain extent because each one touches on a different aspect of God. However, in the way that they have unfolded for me, they have also revealed an arc, a progression from a naive understanding of God to a more mature one. From do your duty to avoid hellfire, to I want God with all my heart, but I'm guilted and worried that I'm not doing enough, to God wants relationship and invites us to share in that joy. How long will it be before I have a new way to look at this story? Jesus crafted a well-designed parable, because look at how much it causes me to chase after an answer and lean in, and then how much more I got from that process. And in this brief episode, we didn't even cover all of the parable, such as the aspects of giving in accordance with ability or To him who has much, more will be given. To him who has little, even that will be taken away. The questions that conclude our time today are, what if you read all the parables with this much hunger? What if we can extrapolate this concept to the entirety of the Bible? What if there's an arc to understanding God, a certain path or trajectory, a route to the divine, followed on the grand scale by the story of humanity, but followed also in the personal walk experienced by each individual who undertakes it, something similar to the walk experienced when working through a parable. In the previous episode, I said that all stories in the Bible point to Jesus like an arrow. I want to expand on that idea and ask one final question. Is that arrow also an arc? Not only pointing to, but passing through the divine. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry podcast that reveals beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. If you're enjoying Stories of Symmetry, then there's a few things you can do to help us reach more people. First, and most important, tell the people in your life. Share the podcast with them, and talk about what you hear. Some more things that we would greatly appreciate are subscribing to the show and giving us a positive review. Please join again for the next episode, which will be out in two weeks. And in the meantime, go with God, go in peace.